CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump were in Atlanta Wednesday to attend the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit. Here's a clip from the president. Everyone here today is united by the same vital goal to liberate our fellow Americans from the grip of drug addiction and to end the opioid crisis once and for all. The CDC says there have been more than 200,000 opioid-related deaths in the U.S. over the last two decades. Georgia has some of the nation's hardest-hit counties. White users have largely been the face of the epidemic, but the problem affects every demographic. We're learning more about that from Don Tyus of Morehouse's Southeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center. She's director of its division that works on treatment and prevention. Don, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Also with us on the line from Little Rock, Arkansas, Sam Snodgrass. He's a recovering opioid user who now counsels and helps others. He has a PhD in biopsychology from UGA. Sam, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Don, I'm going to start with you. We know opioids are highly addictive, and there are many paths to addiction. Frequently, they have been prescribed as pain relievers that quickly turns into dependency. And that crisis has largely been associated with white people in rural areas and the suburbs. What do we know about opioid use among these populations? You're absolutely correct, Miss Virginia. Um, the white Caucasians and suburban and a lot of rural communities have been the face of this epidemic. And largely in speaking with a lot of my colleagues, it's because, you know, at some point doctors were treating the pain and not necessarily worrying about the dependency. Mm -hmm. They were also um, in a lot of these populations, specifically in the suburban populations, had a little bit more access, uh, sometimes largely due to they have insurance and they're able to frequent the doctors. And the doctors are more likely because of that status quo and oftentimes the the look um, to prescribe um, in an abundance to these particular um, cultures and to these particular groups. Um, I think um, also with it being the face of this epidemic is because we don't what a lot of times uh, drugs have cultures have specific drugs that are associated with them from a stigma perspective. Um, when you're thinking about um, African Americans, sometimes they're tied to the cocaine, crack cocaine. They're tied to heroin, but not necessarily the opioid prescription. One thing I would like to say is that I, I agree completely with what Don was saying. Just the way this has played out. Uh, I mean, the, the pain pill epidemic hit the rural parts of this country hit the suburb, suburbs, and the inner cities were primarily spared from the pain pills for various reasons. And uh, this, this pain pill epidemic just swept through the rural sub suburban parts of this country. So, Don, your center is based at Morehouse School of Medicine and has a grant to cover eight states. Now, you're working with white users in rural areas and the suburbs. Those, uh, as we've said, are the face, but also with urban minority populations. Mm -hmm. What kind of numbers are in that demographic? Well, in the demographic with the um, with the African-Americans, we found that between, we know, according to the CDC, but between 2016 and 2017, there was a 26% surge in African-American usage and deaths. And 
so with that population, we found because they don't have a lot of access, especially in rural America, rural um, communities, they don't have access to treatment. Um, I'm a big fan of making sure education and resources are there, but unfortunately, they just don't have it. But one, what we found that one of the main causes in the deaths of African Americans is because fentanyl has become a part of without them knowing a part in getting in cocaine, in heroin, and that's caused a great surge in deaths among African Americans. Yeah, Sam, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that as somebody who is in the treatment field. It's not just doctors prescribing drugs. It's often people who are addicts, no. and now they have access to fairly cheap street drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay, this, this, is, this is what happened. We had this pain pill explosion, and then... Uh, Oxycontin was one of the main drugs that was that was used, mm-hmm. but in 2010, uh, Purdue Pharma changed Oxycontin to an abuse deterrent formulation, uh, OPs. Uh, the data show that about 80% of the people that were using Oxycontin when it was changed to OPs switched to other drugs, primarily heroin. Again, this is primarily the white population at this point. And what what happened then was the main drug that they switched to was heroin. And you can see this in the overdose death data. The overdose deaths from, from heroin started shooting up in 2010. They, they slammed down the op, made the OPs abuse deterrent. They slammed down on the prescribing of other pain pills. Pain pill mills got shut down. And, I mean, what were people supposed to do? Oh, well, I can't get my pain pills, so I guess I'll stop. If we could stop, we wouldn't have been using pain pills. Mm-hmm. So heroin was there. It, was, it had been there, but it hadn't been that much of a problem. If you can get you an Oxy-80, you're not going to go buy heroin. But when they slammed down on pain pills, then people started using heroin. Now, in 2013, between 2013 and 2014, fentanyl started being mixed into the heroin supply. So this fentanyl, is just to basically stretch it further? Is that, the, is that why? The, the fentanyl is a lot cheaper to make, and it's far more potent than heroin. Uh, fentanyl is 30, 50 times as potent as pure heroin, which means that one is cheaper and get more bang for your buck. If you're somebody that's trying to import heroin or, or something across the border, if fentanyl is 30 times as potent, say, as pure heroin, you've got the choice of trying to import 30 kilograms of heroin or one kilogram of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? So it's really the economics of the black market. It, 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 it's called the iron law prohibition. The stronger the law enforcement, the more potent the drugs. There's an economic incentive in a black market to use the most potent form because it's smaller and you get more bang for your buck. And so fentanyl started getting into the white heroin supply. The problem is the white heroin supply became the black heroin supply. And people had been using in, in inner cities who had been using heroin for years, maybe decades, all of a sudden started dying. Because the heroin they were using wasn't heroin. It was heroin mixed with this fentanyl. And the problem is that people don't know the dose of fentanyl that they're using. If you know the dose, you can use it relatively safely. But if, if you're you buying it on the street, you have no idea how much no fentanyl idea. is mixed into that. And that is largely responsible for de- the deaths. Am I correct in that, that it is fentanyl that so many it, people Oh, have- it is definitely fentanyl. Uh, we were talking about the, the CDC data. Deaths involving fentanyl, the largest relative increase, I'm looking at data now, the largest relative increase occurred among blacks, 60.7% between 2016 and 2017. Sam, i got to stop you there because it seems to me that we have not heard about this. I mean, is that your perception as well, that we have heard so much about, you know, the opioid addiction in rural America among white people? 
And when did you say this increase started with African Americans? Started in 2014. Yes. yes. And then in Georgia alone, there was 11.9% increase, according to the CDC data, among African Americans. And he's correct. That did start in 2014 to 2016. And now it's even, um, the numbers are even rising for African Americans. What are some of those things that we think that we really can do to make sure that opioids, for me, although the white communities uh, is pretty much what's the face of it, I think one of the one of the takeaways from that also is that it is an epidemic amongst the country, but it has allowed us to be able to receive more funding for that, to look at it as what can we do for the American people? What can we do for people in general? And, you know, we're being able to provide more resources. We're being able to really develop more programs and, you know, due to the funding of this epidemic. And I want to make sure that we understand that African-Americans are in need of services as well. And we have to really look at these rural populations and access to treatment. We really have to look at what are some of the services that are needed in these areas. Well, I'm talking about the demographics of opioid use with Sam Snodgrass and Don Tyus. Both of them work to help others overcome addiction and also look at prevention and recovery. But quickly, before we get into recovery, how about, we've been talking about black and white populations, Hispanics also represent a decent-sized chunk of the growing population using opioid-related drugs. What are the numbers there? Okay, the Hispanic population, there's been an increase, but it hasn't been as dramatic as in the white or the black population yet. It's not saying that it won't get there, it just hasn't happened yet. So, all right, clearly there's a market for these drugs everywhere, across race, across income, across geography. Now there are moves to pull back on promiscuous prescription writing and to curb supply. Several states suing drug companies, and the president is attending this opioid summit. What is happening to supply and demand now, Sam? Well, if you look at the the most recent overdose data, the, the CDC usually takes them a year to get the overdose data out. So like for the overdose data for 2017 didn't come out for until December 2018. What we've seen now is that the overdose data for pain pills, and this should be no surprise, is decreasing. Death rate for heroin is decreasing slightly, but what's going off the charts is, is the fentanyl-related overdose deaths. If you don't offer them more services, if you don't increase access to treatment and effective treatment, if you don't give them harm reduction programs which can connect them to treatment and keep them safe and alive, people are going to die. There's a lot more money available for that kind of thing because, you know, we know that wealthy opioid users may have insurance or other resources to afford expensive treatments or rehabs. How about lower income populations, especially minority populations? How are they getting help, Don? Uh, for us, because we are training in technical assistance program, it's, it's our job to work with the providers to make sure that they are, as Sam stated, providing, having the, the knowledge base and being able to have to provide effective treatment. Um, I know that one of the things that we do uh, largely, we have a major project at, at Morehouse School of Medicine, is we're working with the faith communities. I mean, it's important that for African Americans, they are connected to their faith communities. And I think that we need to equip these faith communities and these these um, churches with the knowledge base, putting peer support into churches, provide, having programs into churches, helping churches develop programs for lower economic um, African Americans, because they don't have the financial base, and a lot of them don't have um, the insurance. I think that if we um, provide opportunities through insurance for some indigent services, that that would also be a, a good way to help African-Americans in lower populations. Well, what are you thinking, Sam? Uh, obviously, you are a biopsychologist. You are science-based. 
connection, we are told, is the opposite of addiction. Yeah, I've so heard that. So how do you approach that? <laughs> you sounded a little dubious there. Yeah, I am just a bit. So go well, ahead. Why is that? What is, what is you, how would you look at treatment and or prevention? Okay. The most effective treatment for opioid addiction are the medications buprenorphine and methadone. This has been shown repeatedly, demonstrated after study after study, decade after decade, that if you want to help somebody, get them into treatment with these medications. It's all well and good to give people connection, and that is, I'm not trying to downplay that. That is very important. If you can make a connection with somebody, then you can build trust with them, and you can help them move towards any positive change in their drug use in their life, and this is what we're trying to do, and that is very important with connection. But what we're also trying to do, if they're ready and if they want, is to give them a means to stabilize their addiction, to control the symptoms of it, and to be able to lead a more normal life. And this is what these medications have been shown, proven to do. So we really need to uh, increase the access to these medications in the rural parts of this country and in the inner cities. Just an example, less than 5% of the doctors in this country have an X-wayer to prescribe buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. There's over 60% of the rural counties in this country that have not one buprenorphine provider. There are people dying out there. We have a medication that's been proven to save them, and we don't give them access to this medication to stop this overdose epidemic. Well, it seems to and me that the federal it. government is actually much more focused on and funding drug drug replacement treatment therapy than other kinds of therapy. There need to also be done. This X waiver keeps physicians, like I said, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at something. Unless people can have access to it, then they can't use it. So, yes, it's good that the government is starting to see this and starting to provide more money for it, but we need to get rid of this X waiver. We need to get rid of this training. Do you realize that a doctor that goes through this this training they have to get finally gets an X waiver from the DEA, they can only see 30 patients in the first year. I'm going to just turn to Dawn, who has been studying her Morehouse group, looking at best practices for treatment, mm -hmm. also a certified counselor. So what do you think? Treatment and prevention, what are some of the things that work? Well, for us, I know that we found that, I know Sam said that, to get away a lot of times from this training, but it is our job to make sure that we provide effective, efficient, evidence-based practices uh, materials and knowledges and resources to these providers. Um, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with Sam that there um, need to be uh, medicated assisted treatment. We know about buprenorphine and we also have to continue to to making sure that we're providing um, current information to doctors and providers. I also totally agree that we need to make sure that we have recovery ordinances of care. That meaning that we need to have continuous prescriber education because it, I do agree that if you throw money at something that doesn't change the problem but it does really help us to develop um, Products, to develop trainings, to making sure that we have best practices that are out there, that they're also able to access these. And then just looking at meeting people where they are. You know, as a clinician, I think that is very important. If I'm in a community, it's our job to work with providers to find the best practical and way to meet people where they are to get them that, the treatment that they need. Man, we know that now that means, you know, people are showing up in prison, yes. drying out, detoxing, detoxing. basically. Mm -hmm. um, so there are so many different fronts to this. And I want to thank both of you for having for spending some time with us today.
Thank you for having me. Thank you. Don Tias, she's with Morehouse School of Medicine's Southeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center, director of its division that works on treatment and prevention. Sam Snodgrass, former opioid user who now counsels others. He's also on the board of a support group called Broken No More. Thank you again both so much. Thank you. Thank you. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott on Facebook at Virginia Prescott GPB, which could frankly really use some love. We're going to continue our look about the opioid epidemic after the break. Journalist Beth Macy is going to talk about how much drug companies knew about people dying from their products and their addictive power. We're also going to hear stories of users in Appalachia. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing our look at the opioid epidemic now here in Georgia and throughout the United States. President Donald Trump was in Atlanta on Wednesday, where he spoke at the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit. Earlier, we were talking about the faces of the crisis, and journalist Beth Macy knows them well. She documented the effects of opioids in Appalachia and reports on the supply chain to those users in her book, Dopesick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Macy spoke with GPB's Bill Nygut when the book first came out, and he asked her what it means to be dopesick. Hi, Beth. Thanks for being with us for the show. Thanks for having me back again, Bill. It's always great to speak with you. You too. Um... So let me start with a question, the answer to which may be self-evident. What does it mean to be dope-sick? Dope-sick is a word I started hearing right away as soon as I started writing about heroin landing in our city and suburbs uh, here in Roanoke, Virginia in 2012. It's the word users use to describe withdrawal. So when they say they're dope sick, that means they're having sweats, fevers, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, etc. At the end of your journey, you're not continuing to do pills or heroin in order to be high. You're doing it in order not to be dope sick. This is an issue that should be in your face. I know it's an in your face title, but it is also a word I heard over and over again. And I think so many Americans don't understand the concept of it. When you say dope sick is in the title of this book, you're talking about an entire region that in many ways is dope sick, aren't you? I'm talking about an entire America, actually. Um, It's easy to overlook. If you look closely, it's in every neighborhood, every rural community, even idyllic farm towns, as I talk about in the last third of the book, um, there's no place in America where this isn't this crisis. Why do you, why, why Appalachia? Why was that the, uh, the real uh, starting point for this uh, addiction? Yeah, we call it the canary in the coal fields. Um, mm. So it wasn't just Appalachia. It was any distressed rural community where there were jobs going away and where there had largely been a um, high number of people with workplace injuries. So coal mining, furniture making, um, up in Machias, Maine, for instance, um, logging and fishing. So people who were on prescribed immediate release opioids of a much smaller dosage level than OxyContin 
Um, Purdue Pharma, when it when it introduced OxyContin in 1996, it sent its reps all over the country using data that it purchased to see which doctors were already prescribing large numbers of opioids. Those reps then went to those doctors and tried to convince them to prescribe OxyContin instead. When they did that, there had never been a drug on the market that was that powerful. It was supposed to bleed out over 12 hours, and the FDA let them make this claim that because of this new time release mechanism that lasted 12 hours, it was, quote, believed to reduce the risk of abuse and addiction. And of course, uh, we know now that it wasn't. We know now that users almost immediately figured out an end run to that time release. And in these rural areas, uh, many of which are in states that still haven't passed the Medicaid expansion, there's still very limited treatment opportunities. And when you look at that, along with the landscape of declining work, rising disability, rising drug crime. It's it's really been a disaster for rural America. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's remarkable about the book is that you trace the history of um, OxyContin uh, back to its roots. Um, so l- let's talk about that, if we may, a little bit. Um, it, the family that that it, it, OxyContin was uh, basically the brainchild of a pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick out of Connecticut. Is that right? Yes. Purdue Pharma, its holding company was Purdue Frederick. Okay. And you tell us that the company itself really was not on the map in any kind of big way, but the family... They began developing OxyContin. Tell us the story about what happened. Well, they had previously um, introduced something called MS Cotton, which was a morphine-based opioid. Um, and as that patent was set to expire, they introduced OxyContin, which was uh, oxycodone-based. At the same time in America, there was also this notion being pushed that pain was way undertreated. For 100 years, because of there had been a morphine epidemic in the late 1800s after the Civil War, for 100 years, for most of the 1900s, doctors only used opioids for severe pain and end-of-life and cancer pain because we knew that it was addicted because of that prior morphine epidemic and centuries of history. Purdue had this timing to introduce this new stronger-than-ever opioid drug, they were also able to use this new movement that pain was being undertreated. There was this new thing called pain as a fifth vital sign. Doctors were supposed to let patients rate their pain, and that was supposed to be as important as blood pressure or the other three vital signs. Anybody who's visited somebody in the hospital, you see rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 or a smiley face or whatever, which was happening until very recently and probably still is in some hospitals. Things like press gainy surveys started happening where patients were considered consumers and um, a doctor or a hospital could, uh, if somebody wrote you a bad review because you didn't write them a proper prescription for their pain, they could get a bad review and the reimbursements could be hurt. There became an incentive for wanting to perhaps overprescribe for pain because it became one of those five standards for how a doctor or a hospital would be judged by the consumer, by the patient. That's exactly right. Okay, so Oxy comes on on the market. It was introduced in the mid-90s, essentially, right? Yes, 96 it came out. I mean, it was approved in late 95. One of the things that was a first really important moment for OxyContin was that the company claimed that the time-release mechanism within an OxyContin pill 
was such that you probably could not become addicted to it because you couldn't override the time released factor and have enough mm-hmm. at any one time to become addicted. What was really happening? Right. So they said it was um, addictive in, quote, less than one percent of all cases. They said that addiction was, quote, exquisitely rare. They hired 5,000 uh, doctors, nurses, pharmacists to go to training sessions in places like Florida and Arizona, and then to go back and become paid speakers. They hired an army of sales reps to go tell this to doctors, especially in these rural distressed areas where where people had legitimate pain. You know, and the government let them do that. They also gave out a lot of freebies. So at, at a time early on in Lee County, which is one of the Canary in the Coalfields areas that I write about in my book, um, I mean, I, I found the first cop to ever see OxyContin being mm. diverted on the streets. One of his longtime confidential informants leans into, into his cruiser. This is like 97 or 98. Yeah. He says, this fella up, up the street's got this new thing he's selling. It's called OxyContin. And he says, it's great. Yeah. And then after a while, you could tell people had figured out how to override the time release mechanism. And what they did was they put the pill in their mouth, let it melt a little bit, let the coating melt off, which was had the time release part in it. And then they would rub the 40 and 80 milligram coatings off on their shirts. And so the 40 was orange, the 80 was green. And so people were walking around with orange and green stains on their shirt sleeves. It was so obvious that this drug was being abused right away. And it isn't as if Purdue Pharma didn't recognize early on that this was happening. They they had reason to understand that 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 oxycontin was being abused, didn't they? Well, they said for many, many years that they didn't know until early 2000. But according to recent um, documents disclosed in The New York Times, um, just a month or two ago, uh, these were Justice Department documents. Um, they, their higher-ups had knowledge of this um, quite early on, way earlier than 2000. Um, it, it, it seems shocking to me that they wouldn't have known if this cop in Big Stone Gap knows, for yeah. instance. They also were hearing from um, the, the country doctor I profiled in Lee, Lee County. His name is Art Van Zee. He was um, calling them. He was writing letters. Uh, a letter that he wrote in early 2000 said, um, my fear is that these distressed rural communities are sentinel areas for this epidemic, just the way New York and San Francisco were in the early years of HIV. Van Zee's really one of the heroes of your book. He is one of the early crusaders who did everything in his power to get word out about what this horrible, what OxyContin was doing to devastate the community. And finding finding people to listen to his story was not easy, was it? Not easy. I mean, he was organizing like community meetings of 800 people in the high school to try to, um, you know, get the word out so people could protect their kids. And, you know, previous to OxyContin, he said he had one or two, maybe three people a year he treated for um, opioid dependence, drug dependence. And um, right after OxyContin come out, it's like his whole practice was overtaken with it. He had farmers, coal miners, people in their 70s, and then teenagers that he had immunized as babies. He was being called out to their overdoses in the hospital. Um. When you look back at what happened, I mean, he went to Washington, he went to FDA hearings, he testified, and he was always testifying 
at the same time, all these other people who were being largely paid by Purdue because they would have to say, yeah, yes, I'm a paid speaker, um, you know, as part of their divulging whatever. But I counted, I was looking at one of the hearings. It was him versus 19 people. uh, And that's who, I mean, he was the one person's urging caution. And really he was, his, his letters were very reasonable. He said, you know, Tawan did this a number of years ago. This was another opioid. They realized it was being abused. They took it off the market and they reformulated it. And then they put it back on the market, reformulated to be abuse resistant. That was really all he was asking them to do in the early days. And they refused. So, um, you know, there there are a lot of people who are complicit in in your book makes it clearer how they played their own roles in all of of the spread of this addiction. Um, Talk a little bit about the detail. Those the people who went out on behalf of the company to encourage doctors to prescribe opioids to their patients. Um, I profile a doctor who realized early on that this was wrong. He said all the reps coming in were on the younger side of middle age, very good looking. They bring these delicious free meals and uh, other perks. What they would do was find out what you like. If you were a human cigar aficionado, they would show up with your kind of cigar And it was all, of course, in exchange for them to be able to deliver their pitch. Purdue wasn't the only one playing this game. I mean, I tell the story about this doctor in Withville who actually put a sign-up sheet in uh, in her her back office so that a rep could... A rep could vie to sponsor her daughter's upcoming birthday trip to Carowinds, the amusement park. Yeah. I mean, just kind of shocking. And then this doctor that I profile who fought back, I mean, by which I mean that he refused to take anything because he knew it was wrong. You know, he would he said he would go and, you know, get his cold leftovers from home in the company fridge and, and eat quietly. And um, and his colleagues would say, well, we. We have to let them bring us lunch because what would the staff would be so upset if, if um, we took <laughs> yeah. their free lunches away? Oxycontin and eventually heroin uh, became uh, such a tragic uh, crisis across the country. Now, so the doctors had reason because they were being uh, courted by the salespeople. And then there were great bonuses and incentives for the salespeople themselves. And again, as you point out, it's not just in the selling of OxyContin. It's a fairly common practice across the pharmaceutical industry, but it certainly happened with OxyContin, didn't it? Yeah, reps, they earned more bonus money uh, according to the most milligrams they talked a doctor into prescribing. So if you got a doctor to write more 80 milligram than 40, your bonus would be even larger. Yeah. Um, during those early years. So one rep told me you could make as much as $100,000 a quarter in bonus alone. So here's what, okay, let me, let's talk about what does Oxycontin in a 40 or 80 milligram dose do to an individual? People were being murdered as they were making their night deposits for the grocery store. It was a grocery store manager murdered so somebody could get the money to buy more uh, illicit Oxycontin. A 75-year-old coal miner and farmer murdered in a drug deal gone bad. I mean, not what you would think of. They started seeing prostitution in in rural Lee County, which they had never seen before. People were driving to Mexico because, to their credit, Purdue did take the 160-milligram pill, which had initially been on the market. They took that off the market. But people were then driving to Mexico to get it. A 23-hour trip um, and bring them back. I mean, just behavior that... They had never seen before. 
Um, also complicit to an extent in this early on were the insurance companies you point out to us because the insurance companies were more willing to cover OxyContin than the, because they thought it was cheaper and a quicker fix uh, than uh, other kinds of pain control that uh, uh, they might have to pay for, right? Right. Cheaper than physical therapy, yeah. you know, which can go on for months and OT and meditation and uh, massage therapy. Uh, this is a time of managed care. And, it, you know, and you also have to look at kind of Medicaid, uh, all the fraud that went into Medicaid. A lot of people were um, Lee County. So many of the jobs had gone away. So many of the middle aged working age men were unemployed and people started realizing if they, they could take their Medicaid card, convince their doctor that they had all this pain. And, you know, some probably did, but they could they could get these pills for a dollar or two using their Medicaid card. And then they could sell them on the black market and make thousands of dollars. Yeah. And, and one woman does it because that's the only way she can get her blood pressure medicant medication and the other stuff she needs she's still and then she gives half to her neighbor who is addicted already um i mean that happened times a thousand out there That's Beth Macy speaking with GPB's Bill Nygut about her 2018 book, Dope Sick. Macy is a veteran journalist who's written extensively about the opioid crisis in Appalachia. And coming up, she's going to dive into the history of heroin use in the U.S., which goes back further than you might think. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. And we're examining the opioid crisis today in Georgia and the rest of the country in light of the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta this week. We've been hearing from journalist and author Beth Macy. She's covered the epidemic in Appalachia and looked at the history of heroin use in the U.S., which she discussed with GPB's Bill Nygut. I'm Bill Nygut. Beth Macy joins me today. Beth, you tell a really uh, amazing story because you trace back um, really the notion of painkillers like Oxy. You take us all the way back to when morphine was first being administered uh, for pain with the use of hypodermic needles. And you take us back to the Civil War. Tell us what the story is about how doctors, what they were doing with Civil War veterans who had been injured, who needed treatment. How is that all unfolding? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I actually trace it back to even before that well, yes, time. Well, yes, you're right. In, 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 in 1810, a German apothecary isolated morphium from opium and um, started testing it out. And he warned that this could create calamity. I mean, he, you know, he figured it out and then he realized that it was so addictive. In 1853, Alexander Wood, who was Scottish, invented the hypodermic needle. 
he swore that because it was a different delivery system, not a pill, that it wouldn't cause addiction. So everybody was swayed by the shiny new thing. And of course, the, the hypodermic needle was an amazing invention, you know, for many uses beyond uh, morphine. But um, after the Civil War, there were 100,000 uh, Civil War veterans addicted. You know, it is said that that during the battlefields, uh, medics would go around and, and put morphine on their gloves and, and, you know, wounded soldiers would lick it off their gloves. Mm. Um, by 1900, there were 250,000 Americans addicted to painkillers, many of them women uh, in small southern towns. Um, so here's this doctor in um, Richmond. I'm going to read it really quick. Uh, writing a letter to the editor. And it's so precious. You can take he your says, time. <laughs> this evil is confined to no class or occupation. It numbers among its victims some of the best women and men of all classes. Prompt action is then demanded lest our land should become stupefied by the direful effects of narcotics and thus disease physically, mentally, and morally. The love of liberty swallowed up by the love of opium, while the masses of our people would become fit subjects for a despot. Wow. But you tell us that way back in 1820... Um, there was an opium smuggling operation uh, off the Cantonese coast that uh, yeah. was making money for some of the most prominent Brahmins of of the time. The the Cabot family, Delano, as, yeah, and Delano the is an FDR. Family. Yes, and 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 a lot of that money they say is part of what fueled the industrial revolution. Yeah. All those factory towns up in Lowell, Massachusetts, and. And whatnot. So, okay, we're going back. We're at the end of the uh, 19th century because this is going to take us forward. And now suddenly we start hearing more and more about heroin. It was first a cough suppressant and was heralded as being a wonderful way to to deal with uh, some fairly simple uh, medical problems. And that in itself is astonishing. Yeah, it was invented by Bayer Aspirin yeah. Company or Bayer Company in 1898. It was sort of the the people working in the labs were sort of buying. Was heroin going to be their new drug or was aspirin? And so it comes out in 1898, and it it's it, as a little pill form. I've I've got a picture of the the heroin bottle, um, and uh, it was trumpeted. Also, you know, an, another we're going to put in another form, and now we're going to say it's it's not only a cure for for coughs and bronchitis. This is before antibiotics were widely used, you know, and and so it was helpful in that respect. But it was also used as like baby soothing tonics yeah. and a, just crazy things um, for, for it was like a cure all. And then so then the in the early 1900s, finally doctors start hearing this this Richmond doctor who I just read you from, but they start going, oh yeah, this is a problem. And then eventually heroin becomes outlawed in 1924, um, all sort of setting the stage for the, the war on drugs later. One of the first stories you tell us is about Jesse Bostridge's mother. How old was Jesse when he died? I believe he was 19. Yeah. 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 And Ronnie Jones was the dealer who gave him, if I got that story right, or is that separate? 
It's it's he <laughs> Ronnie Jones arrives in 2012 to this rural area in the northern Shenandoah Valley, which is about several hours from the coal field. So I'm trying to I tell this story, which I think is a microcosm of what's happening in America by starting in rural for in the in the central Appalachia, Lee County. And then I show how it progressed to the cities in the suburbs by writing about um, Roanoke, where I live, yep. where I first started covering this in 12. And then more recently, and this is the Jesse and Ronnie Jones story. I say heroin has arrived in a big way, even in small kind of idyllic uh, farming communities, which don't have overprescribing um, rates that are higher than the average, which are which are still sort of protected. And sociology studies bear this out in communities where there weren't one extractive industry dominating that could then leave and everybody be in crisis. Um, in in these typically are farming communities, they tend to be. Uh, less prescribing of opioids and more economically um, undistressed. But so when Ronnie arrives in 2012 to serve out the last part of his sentence, his prison sentence, he had been um, a convicted drug dealer before. He works, he's working in a chicken plant in this rural community. And um, he notices in the break room that a lot of the people who are passing around pills are addicted to opioids. And when his sentence is up, it's kind of a a well-intentioned workplace program designed to help felons get work skills. When he gets out, nobody will hire him. Nobody will rent him space. And so he remembers in the workroom, somebody said, you know, if you want to start dealing again, you should, you should bring in heroin because all these people in the workroom are addicted to opioids. Not all of them, but many of them. And that would be a better business model for for you, so he and another dealer um, get a source in Harlem, and they start bringing heroin in, in bulk to this tiny community called Woodstock. And that, I mean, he didn't directly sell to Jesse, but his his arrival and his bringing of heroin into this region allowed um, the supply of heroin in this community you, yeah. to, to expand like tenfold. Yeah, you quote a prosecutor uh, in the community is saying that Ronnie Jones spread, quote, a tsunami of misery in Woodstock, Virginia. Um, yes. Beth, you, I think, make the point that uh, the states that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act have better luck in dealing with the addictions. How do you how do you describe that? Yes. Um, well, so let's look at Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, back when they started the expansion, um, which was actually what the Affordable Care Act was based on, what was then called Romney Care when he was governor of Massachusetts, they have, um, for the first time, according to the new um, overdose numbers, they they have actually started to see a slight decrease. And that's because in their hospitals, they have programs where if you overdose, you're um, immediately put into uh, a medication-assisted treatment program. They have many more uh, syringe exchanges, syringe exchange and recovery programs, where people who are, say, many many addicts are living homeless, they can go into these low-threshold clinics and they can get uh, clean needles, they can get wound care, they can get testing for hepatitis C and then referral to treatment. And most importantly, when they're ready, because they've made relationships with these people that run these services, they can get into treatment. And so they have many more portals in the states that passed Medicaid earlier to get um, access to treatment that helps prevent overdose death. I mean, in New England now, you've got... Um, 
Well, Maine still has a really, really bad overdose rate. It's still increasing. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Vermont, who have who are all using this, it's called hub and spoke, where you're coming into the ER and then you get referred directly into treatment. They are all starting to see a slight decline in numbers. And it's really the first time. And it's just more proof that when you have these syringe exchanges and you have these programs, um, you're going to get better results. Before we uh, run out of time, is um, the uh, controversy between 12-step programs that are established for addiction recovery and the use of maintenance drugs and other therapies. You come down very firmly in terms of the people you talk to, I think it's fair to say, is saying that our medical uh, uh, communities don't seem to value uh, maintenance drugs in the same way that that the 12-step programs have kind of become the default mechanism. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, especially in regions where there just aren't, like in Virginia, we only have two rehab centers in the whole state that allow you to be on MAT. Which uh, MAT, Massachusetts which stands for... Is a medication-assisted ma- yeah. treatment, right. and, and the most uh, effective, uh, according to the studies, uh, forms of that are methadone, which has been around for a long time, mm-hmm. and Suboxone. And uh, or buprenorphine is is the generic name for that, I should say. And uh, many of I mean, I follow many people in the book who are the only treatment they can get at all is AA and NA because they can't access these because of the healthcare situation. And, um, you know, I watched young Tess Henry go to these NA meetings. I used to drive her to them, which was a condition of her being on her buprenorphine. And, you know, she was treated okay in the meetings, but anytime she asked somebody to sponsor her, they refused because they perceived her as being, quote, unclean. And I think in um, some places this is starting to change. I was in New Hampshire this week, um, a gentleman that was interviewing me on the radio. He also runs a treatment center, and he says they now have MAT Recovery Anonymous programs, so 12-step programs that are okay with that. And he said there were only five in the U.S., and they had one of them there in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, he was really happy about. I think because NA and AA, um, you know, grew initially from Alcoholics Anonymous and— so as did the rehab center industry, it's it's that's why it's still so still remains so abstinence only focus. But again, there's no controversy at all among medical and science professionals. Study after study shows that buprenorphine and methadone, while they're not perfect, they're still the best tools in the toolbox for reducing overdose deaths. So you're looking at 50 to 60 percent success rate compared to a heroin user going to NAAA or an abstinence-only treatment. Numbers are closer to 10 percent. Well, there's also the issue that uh, I, some of the pushback comes from those who uh, who raise their voices to suggest that uh, that an addiction to heroin that's replaced by an addiction to methadone is not a step in the right direction. I mean, there there is that argument out there. I'm not sure how sensible it is. What do you think? Um, well, I disagree. Uh, Dr. Van himself would say it's almost cruel and in, 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 inhumane to expect somebody who has been addicted to opioids for years that they can just go off of it without the help of these maintenance drugs. He has people... Um, he's been treated. He's been a sub- Suboxone prescriber since 2003, almost since the beginning of it. He has people now getting off of disability. This in a community where 57 percent of the men working age 
are unemployed. I mean, this is astonishing. Some of them are just using a half a milligram a day. And he still, he says, I, I'm still scared to take them off it all the way because they still can relapse. They're vulnerable for relapse. And typically what happens is when people relapse, they go back to the dosage they were using. But at this point, they're opioid naive and they're much more likely to die. Of course, there's fentanyl in the supply now, too, which makes it even more dangerous. Okay, Um, He he thinks it's okay for people to be on it uh, for the rest of their lives, just the way uh, diabetics are on insulin. um, Another controversy that uh, I I believe there's at least one instance in your book that deals with this is the the question of of, uh, states that have passed statutes which allow you to uh, report an overdose without being subjected to uh, arrest. Uh, if you're with somebody who's just overdosed on heroin, uh, is passed out from uh, uh, whatever drug. Uh, and that's, that's a controversy, but, uh, b- but clearly more and more states are looking at it as important. Georgia sees the value of that. Yeah, Virginia passed one a, a couple years ago, but I'm told there are loopholes and that largely people who are using together when somebody overdoses, they might call 911, but they flee the scene. I mean, that happened over and over again in the book, including with whose mother asked me to go interview Ronnie Jones. I saw you on a TV interview where you showed a locket. What is um, it? It's a locket that Patricia Merriman, Tess's mom, gave me after Tess was brutally murdered on Christmas Eve. And um, Tess was trying so hard to get home and to get back into treatment. Um, she was living homeless on the street. She was prostituting. She was involved in a dangerous world of uh, prostitution um, and criminal drug gangs. And uh, we don't know exactly what happened to her. But anyway, Patricia gave me this locket that has a poem by E.E. E. Cummings on uh, etched on the outside. It says, um, uh, it's called, I Carry Your Heart in My Heart. And that was That poem was really important to Tess, who wrote poetry herself, and it represented the way she felt about her son, and that was why she wanted to get home and get well again so she could get custody of him and take care of him because she loved him so much. So inside the locket, I put a picture of Tess on one side with her rescue dogs that she loved, and I put James Baldwin on the other side Mm. because James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced, and that's really my hope is that people will understand how we got here. They will understand um, the concept of dope sickness. They will understand the concept of medication-assisted treatment. It's a, it's a tough thing uh, to get your arms around. And I, I, I want people to be informed when they make these choices about sending their kids away uh, to these abstinence-only rehabs. I want them to be informed about uh, having opioids in your medicine cabinet leftover from surgery. I mean, we should all get rid of those, right? Because that's how so many young users come to this through taking pills from their parents and grandparents' medicine cabinets. I just want uh, people to be better informed so that they can protect themselves and their families and uh, advocate um, for things that will help us get out of this epidemic. Uh, Beth, it's always a joy to talk to you. Um, Beth Macy, thanks for being with us. Take care, everybody. 
That is journalist and author Beth Macy speaking about her book, Dope Sick, with GPB's Bill Nygut. On Second Thought today has been focused entirely on the opioid crisis, so if you missed part of the show, you can be sure to check it out later at gbbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is our managing editor for news at GBB. You can join the conversation about anything you hear on the show on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OSD Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gbb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott, inviting you back for more of On Second Thought tomorrow at 9.